Welcome to the Master Builders Podcast, the podcast where we discuss issues affecting the building industry. It's the podcast by Master Builders for Master Builders. I'm your host, Max Rafferty, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Robert Shaw. Hi, Robert. How you been? Yeah, good, Max. Been excellent. Just uh, got in. It's a little bit windy over here in Perth and a bit of rain. Just been out for a 42k bike ride to get the day started. Oh, goodness me. Any of that through bushland? Nah, it's around the beautiful Swan River. How did you fare over summer for the bushfire season, Robert? Yeah, over in the west, certainly uh, we had a fair few bushfires as well, but nothing to the extreme of what happened on the uh, the east coast. So I was watching that with intent because right where those fires were, were is the territory where I was born down in Kiama and that south coast of New South Wales is, uh, well, I've got a lot of relations down there. So yeah, keeping tabs on what was happening over there, very concerning, you know, a lot of photos and a lot of graphics that you see on social media and the news. So uh, yeah, we had a... Uh, fairly concerning with what was going on over there yeah there was it was it was definitely uh, there was a lot there was a lot happening it was it was quite hectic and there's definitely been a lot of change i saw a lot of change in how the community was informed and dealt with um especially considering the last big bushfires i went through were the 2003 canberra bushfires i know that in the act whilst i spent most of the summer inside with doors shut uh, the, the information and the communication coming out to the general public was uh, you know, amazing uh, not even comparable to 2003 yeah like you know, when you when you how do you prepare for something like that? It was ferocious, fast moving, and coming on many fronts. So it's easy to sit back and you listen to some of the media and some of the social media, and everyone can be a critic. But I was quite proud um, the way Australia handled it. Um, I would like to see us sort of bandy together a little bit more and and not take a time for cheap shots. But I was quite impressed with what we did and how we went about it under the circumstances. So, so, so Robert, following all these fires, have you ever had to build in a bushfire-prone area? Yeah, I think everyone does over the time build in where there's, I guess, a high risk of fire or, or especially over in Perth in the hills where people want to live amongst the trees. So uh, it's a contentious piece where um, you have clients that want to live amongst nature and at that point in time, that was a while ago, the, one of the first ones we built, the regulations sort of weren't that strict. So you could virtually build um, on the side of a cliff in amongst the trees with the branches literally coming over the, you know, on, on the outdoor living area. It's quite spectacular. But when you think about a fire, yeah, then it's probably uh, not good. So I guess from a builder's point of view, um, when you think about it now and the fires that we've just had um, and the regulations that we've got, that springs to mind, you know, this could trigger uh, a reaction that we could be unpicking, we as builders or the community. So one thing that we do learn over the journey is a lot of people like choice. So if we over-regulate, um, that would be my biggest fear where people lose their choice. Um, certainly we don't want loss of life, but in those fires, my view is that you're very hard to regulate to stop complete loss of housing. And if you did, or, or buildings, you would, uh, wouldn't would be able to afford to build them. So there's got to be a balance around that. So I think it's a, a lot of conversation to be had. And I believe there's regulations that were changed a couple of years ago that really haven't come into play because... Um, Obviously, you don't knock down a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old house that's functional to knock, to put up a new house just because the regulation change. So you'll see that a little bit of that, or we see a lot of that come through the system now with the loss of housing. Yeah, I know when I built my home 
Robert, it was in a bowel 12.5 zone. And at the time, whilst I was aware that the standard existed, I wasn't fully au fait with what the, the steps for building this in a bowel 12.5 were going to be. Um, so at that point, you know, as I, as I do, I, I got access to the Australian standard and started to figure out what that was going to mean for me. And I think that experience um, w- was educational, um, but I guess like all of these things, they're a moving feast. And so every time you think, oh, well, I better, I better update what I know. I better see if the standards change. I better see if things are different. Um, yeah. Yeah, Matt, look, it's, it's another thing we deal with in our industry with regulation, so whether it's fire or something else. So in the case where it's fire, in this case, it's um, a matter of another thing that we need to be across, make sure there's any changes and also make sure the client understands what they're getting into and obviously they might be thinking, you know, standard build costs and then they don't realise that there's implications building in a fire zone. So once that happens and then you might have a client that uh, is pushing the budget, so they might want to try and just cover the code uh, and in that zoning or you might have a client that um, wants to put in some more precautions and go cutting edge and and then you're sort of looking for, I guess, better than the zoning code for that area for bushfires. So there's a whole host of things that goes on when you're building in a fire zone and, you know, the client and but the minimum standard we've got to build to as a builder, we can't shortcut that. So, you know, there's a lot going on in that space and uh, we're going to see a lot more concern and interest in that space now with what's happened over east. But at the end of the day, we still see that people want to have choice and they still want to live in the bush. Uh, we know it's a risk. And if you clear the bush for 500 metres all around the house, well, they must not live in the bush. So it's a a very delicate one. And as time goes on from the bushfire, people slowly forget. So, you know, they push back a little bit harder because they don't want to fork up the extra cost. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, today's topic is building in bushfire-prone areas and the Australian standard 3959. Today's guest is Colin Wood, who has been looking at the issue of building in bushfire zones for the past 25 years. As you will hear, Colin was right in the middle of the recent bushfires in the Shoalhaven area, which is located on the south coast of New South Wales, where he is the section manager for building and compliance with the Shoalhaven Council. He's an environmental health and building surveyor and has 39 years experience with local government and private practice. Colin is also the chair of the construction subcommittee for AS3959, Construction and Bushfire Program. Hi Colin, to start with, can you tell us where you live? I live in the south coast um, of New South Wales. I also have a house in the Blue Mountains, which is west of Sydney. And what I do is that I work at uh, Selhaven City Council and I'm the building and compliance manager there and I'm a building surveyor, I'm an accredited certifier and I also um, have an interest in bushfires and I've been on the Australian Standards Committee since 1995. How did you become interested in bushfire construction? Well, I was working at Blue Mountain City Council in 1994 when we had, in the Christmas of 1994, when we had a major bushfire come through and at the time I was the fire safety officer and my boss said to me, he said, I think you need to go and do some surveys of these buildings as to why they were lost. 
Now, Blue Mountain City Council, along with uh, a few other councils, were at that time had major requirements in place for 20-odd years beforehand for building in bushfire-prone areas. So when I moved up there, I had this natural interest in the bushfires. Once I did those ground surveys, I, I, I thought, you know, this is a really interesting element of building surveying and, the, and it's an important thing for the community. And it was following that that um, the Australian Institute of Building Surveyors asked me if I would like to go on to the Standards Committee because I, I wrote some some information on what I found back in the 1994, the January 1994 fires. And um, they gave me that interest and gave me that opportunity and and I've been in that space ever since and I totally love it. I think that it's um, it, it provides some, a vital part of what we do in Australia and I think that we really need to focus on bushfires. How are you personally affected by the recent bushfires? Yes, our bushfires started here on the 26th of November and it went out um, on the 6th of February. So we've had our fair share of bushfire down here. It has um, really been an impact on our communities. We've lost just over a thousand buildings and of those we've lost um, about 320 dwellings. So it has been a real significant uh, impact on our community and we're trying to regroup and help people through the building process so they can come back to normality as best they can. So were you in the area when the bushfires were on? Yes, I was. I, I, I live in Sussex Inlet, which is um, one of the uh, villages here, and we were actually cut off for um, four days. So um, I was I was caught in that in that area. And I think you, you probably need to understand too that we are a huge tourist area, and um, during the peak holiday period, we, we actually swell with um, tourists, and um, we had all these tourists here, and it hit Sussex Inlet on on um, a New Year's Eve. So we had uh, all these tourists that uh, had to be displaced. So it was it was quite a, a challenging time for everybody. A lot of people haven't lived through a bushfire experience. Colin, could you tell us what it's like for you and your family to live through the experience? I was actually cut off from my family. They were up in, in the mountains at the time. But it, the smoke, it just, it just lingers on for weeks. Not not days, but it lingers on for weeks. And uh, people were, were suffering from that. But, uh, you know, we get through it. It's not my first bushfire. It's about my fifth bushfire that I've been through. But um, it was probably right up there as one of the worst I've seen. So you, you've just told us what it was like to go through the experience of the bushfires with your family. What are the factors that affect the development of these kind of bushfires? Well, as a, as a fire starts, they generally start out small. Um, and then they, they generate and they come through and they, they take out the um, the understory and the substory and then they can travel through into the canopy. It depends on the landscape in which they're burning, and mm -hmm. um, they'll move through a landscape, and if you have um, high slopes, then they'll move faster through those high slopes. Um, different types of vegetation will burn at different rates as well, and they have different fuel loadings. So like in a forested situation where you have very high fuel loads, it'll travel through that and it'll be quite fierce, and it will have lots and lots of embers that are generated from that, and the propensity of the embers as it travels through um, the landscape will then you know, give us spot fires ahead of the fire. And in contrast to that, you have um, grasslands, and we've seen paddocks and, and things that go up, and they move very quickly through that landscape. So, Colin, as a builder, I mean, what I'm really interested in knowing is what are the risks to a house? What are the what are the weak points in the construction that create risks for houses in bushfire situations? Well, we have what we call um, uh, bushfire attack mechanisms, 
And the main bushfire attack mechanisms that we have are wind, because wind has a, an impact on it, because it drives the fire and it can actually have an impact on the building as the wind pressures come through. We have embers and a lot of our buildings are lost from embers. We then have radiant heat, which impacts on the delivery um, to the body of the building and how materials will react to that radiant heat. They vary from material to material. And then of course you have direct flame contact and sometimes you'll be too close to the bush. But you don't need to have um, the direct be near the bush to have the direct flame contact. Lots and lots of homes are lost by landscaping in and around uh, the home because we actually invite the fire to our home. And if an ember strikes into landscaping right next to a building and that landscaping takes fire or catches fire and then it impacts directly onto glass, then the glass will shatter and then of course you've got the elements that are outside, the embers and everything else and the radiant heat, then coming inside the building and that's where your building generally gets lost. And we do have evidence of, of buildings that are some distance from the fire front and then they burn down. And this is, this is one of those causes. Can you talk to us a little bit about how services affected by bushfires? Um, you, I'm thinking electricity, gas, water. Well, I think if we go through them in order, I mean, your electricity is, is probably the first thing that gets cut. And that's because as the fire travels through the landscape, it damages the lines that come in. So, so you lose that. You can also lose your telecommunications, and if your telecommunication towers go down, then we lose that our favourite new friend, which is our mobile, and you lose that, and then when that's gone, then you start to lose contact with the world. With water, of course, everybody is trying to use the water, and you will have lower pressures in the water. If you're down lower in the landscape, then the water pressure is actually better than if you are at the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. And of course, when a, when a house burns down, um, you find that the pipes burst and then they've got water going through the place. And um, this is one thing that we found down here. Um, People had to then go and turn the water off at the main and uh, then that improved the pressure as you go through. Gas is an interesting one. You can have reticulated gas, which is um, your gas on the lines under the ground, or you can have um, bottled gas. Now, we have a lot of bottled gas down here and we've seen evidence of the gas bottles um, that have vented and of course when they're venting you've got flame directly onto the building and that is problematic to us. I know that in the Australian Standard we're working towards uh, looking at reticulated gas and bottled gas has also been suggested that we need to have a look at it. So you just mentioned the Australian Standard about construction in bushfire prone areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the Australian Standard has been around since, um, since about 1991. I think the first um, edition came out. It's had lots of um, editions since then. We're, we're currently working with the 2018 edition. What it does, and, and I really like this Australian standard and I'm really pleased to have been involved with it. What it does is it, it sets out what a building uh, has to um, achieve uh, during a bushfire situation. It gives you a methodology on um, the bushfire attack mechanism. Um, it provides you with some general requirements for um, construction in bushfire prone areas. It then goes through the individual bushfire attack levels, and we call them BALs, and it's a bushfire attack level 12.5 kilowatts per metre squared, or it's 19, 29, 40, or flame zone. So it's a graduated scale that goes through, and of course, the options as you go further up that scale towards flame zone become less, and the building materials that you use become more stringent. I like what the Australian standard is doing and I like the way that we've set it out. Um, We had a lot of help from 
um, Master Builders Association in that. Um, you'll notice that our standard when we talk about construction, it's all about the way you build the building. You build the building from the ground up, so the standard is naturally written in that way. You go from the from the footings through to the walls, through to the roof, and then you put the windows and all that sort of stuff. So it has a logical um, format to it. Now I think I need to say that it is building in bushfire prone areas. It's buildings in bushfire prone areas. It's not dwellings in bushfire prone areas, although it does have a lot of predication on dwellings. But you can use this standard for anything. You could use this standard for a factory, for a shop, for um, a bed and breakfast. You can use it for anything at all and the concepts are still the same. So as a builder, how do I know when AS3959 is going to be applied to my development? What are the mechanisms? The Australian standard is called up through um, the National Construction Code and the National Construction Code applies throughout Australia and in that National Construction Code it calls up um, compliance with the Australian standard or for residential development you can also call up the NASH standard which is the National Association of Steel Homes. That document only relates to homes but the majority of our buildings that we're dealing with in bushfire prone areas are homes. So yeah. you've got an option, you can go one or the other and in the um, National Association, the NASH standard it actually talks about some of the commonalities of the Australian standard like uh, site assessment, um, the requirements for windows and doors you refer back to the Australian standard, but it's um, it's a set um, document, and you can use that. And we we have been using that um, for uh, a lot of homes because uh, they seem to be able to use that because steel frames are becoming very popular down here, and uh, we're finding that people are going down that path as well. So it's not just the Australian standard; you can use the NASH standard. So if we're talking about the difference between the NASH standard and AS3959. The NASH standard has been developed to deal with non-combustible steel framing, whereas AS3959 looks at your traditional timber frame construction. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is it. And it's interesting because it, it's been developed by the engineers and, and because they design from the top down and we build from the bottom up, it's almost as if it's in reciprocal of each other. Um, so it does take a little bit of getting used to. They, they deal with roofs first and then they go external walls and floor systems where, of course, the Australian standard talks about how we build it. So we go the other way. But it's all, it's all good. Yeah, it's nice to have one standard coming from the ground up and another one coming from the roof down. It doesn't hurt to have two opposing methods for the same outcome. Yes, that's true. That's true. So we've got AS3959 and the NASH standard both looking to regulate construction in bushfire-prone areas. How do we define a bushfire-prone area? Well, I work in exclusively in New South Wales, and in New South Wales we have a mapping system, and our mapping system is prepared by the local government area, and then it, it details the vegetation in it, and it details what is within generally 100 metres of development. And we have those maps prepared, and then those maps go through to the Rural Fire Service, which we call the RFS here in New South Wales. They then ratify those maps, and then that map generally will go on the GIS system for the individual council. So if you're here in New South Wales, you'll be able to um, log on to the system, log on to the council system, punch in bushfire prone area and it should come up and you, you put in your property address and it'll tell you whether or not you're bushfire prone. That does not tell you whether 
your bushfire attack level 12.5, 19, 29, 40 or flame zone. That's, that's subject to a site assessment. But this is just the first cut. Now those maps here in New South Wales have to be reviewed every five years. And um, once you review them, and the reason for the review of course is we have more development and those development areas are impacting on current bushfire prone areas. So therefore the lines on the map move. And that's why we do it every five years. But it's it's actually quite a good system. I understand that other states have similar systems where they can identify areas. And if you don't have a map, you can always identify um, whether or not it's bushfire prone at the time you're doing your approval, whether it's a development assessment or whether it's a construction certificate doing the build component of it. So if I'm looking at practical considerations for builders, what are the construction elements that we should really be thinking about? It's interesting that you say that because we have two different um, two different methodologies. People, I think, get confused about um, a building in a bushfire prone area and then building survival in a bushfire prone area. They are, in fact, two different paths, as I said, two different trains on two different tracks. The Australian standard, rightly so, is just looking at the construction of the building. The NASH standard is just looking at the construction of the building. But most buildings are actually lost by what people do on their properties with their buildings. See, if I have a building built and it complies with the Australian standard for bowel 12.5, which is the lowest bowel level, yet I go and put landscaping right next to my house, then I've actually invited the fire to my house. That building is not designed to have direct flame on it. So that is one of the components that we need to look at, and it's the ongoing maintenance throughout the system. Another thing that is coming forward and in the forefront that we've been um, looking at in our ground surveys of fire events and we've done one here down in Conjola Park, is the impact of building-to-building fire. You see, the building fire is more virulent or more intense than a bushfire. So if you have one building on fire and there's nobody there, and there's nobody there as far as owners are there, but there's nobody there as far as the RFS or or the, um, the town brigade, then they can't put that fire out. Now, the radiant heat flux that you will get from that impacting on the house next door is well in excess of about 12.5. So if you build about 12.5, your neighbour is probably your biggest threat. We understand that and we're trying to put that in as another component. And this is something that may be considered in future editions of the Australian standard. It's not there yet. We just need to have more science and more ground truthing of that. So it's what you do with the building and the way you use your building that can have an impact on its survivability. And we need to get that across. As builders, we, we really do understand that maintenance plays a really important role. But do you think you can take us through some really core construction requirements? Yeah, there certainly is. And I think one of the main misconceptions is that um, you can't build in a bushfire prone area, and that's not the case. The Australian standard gives you an outcome, depending on how close you are to the impacting vegetation. If I was just to give you an example, if you had a... If you had a brick veneer home on a slab, then that's going to be fine for all the bowels. Bowel 12.5, 19, 29, 40 and flame zone. Yep. The things that will vary will be what you do with the windows. Now the reason that we have those five different categories is the way that glass actually impacts. So your vulnerabilities are your glass. So at the lower end at bowel 12.5, you've got normal float glass. 
and normal float glass will be okay at bowel 12.5. It's not going to be bowel 12.5 for a prolonged period of time because the bushfire actually goes through quite quickly. But it should be able to survive. If you go to 19, then it's the same glass, but you have to have a screen over the openable and fixed portions. If you go through to bowel 29, then you're looking at toughened glass of 5 millimetres. If you then go to bowel 40, you're looking at toughened glass 6 millimetres with screens over both openable and fixed. And then if you go to flame zone, you're looking at a fire rated glass. So glass is the predicator that we've got for the different bowels. And we understand that as we go through the Australian standard. The Australian standard is actually looking at putting out a supplement um, that will put it into a table format that will actually help builders because it's got to help builders and building surveyors and mums and dads to get to that next standard. So your vulnerabilities are your windows. Next vulnerability is your roof. It'll get into your roof, so we need to do something in and around to stop that. We've got a sarking material, which is only a secondary component that stops the embers. It doesn't stop all the embers, but in your roof space, you've got dust, you've got storage, and that's where your fire will start in there. So that's another vulnerability that we need to look at. If you get to flame zone, and if you're using the Australian standard, then it really does upsize it, and it puts things like um, plywood that you need to put over... Um, the roofing system and I know people think oh you're going to put timber in a bushfire prone area but what it does is it actually insulates your roof so so timber is not a bad bad thing to have in that component of course it's protected on the outside it's a very very heavy roof and um, and I haven't found yet anyone using timber trusses mainly they're using steel trusses on those components to support that roof and a lot of them are not using tiles as well on that roof, on that flame zone roof. And I think that it's because of the weight that you have. So a lot of those flame zone roofs that I'm seeing built have got the, um, the colour bond and they're using that. So I can understand what they're doing there. Another vulnerability, of course, are your doors, as you do have for your windows, the same sort of vulnerability. But everybody wants a timber door. But, you know, we've got to stop that at this point when we get up in those bowels of bow 40 and bow flame zone you just can't have those timber doors that you that you want to have or if you're going to have them then you need to protect them on the outside with a well a not so attractive um, metal screen door over the outside of it and of course our biggest um, impact uh, are timber decks um, people have those timber decks and those timber decks fail we understand that and um, here in New South Wales, and I know I keep going back to New South Wales, but here in New South Wales, you cannot use, you must use bushfire resistant timber for all the components, for the decking and for the bearers and the joists. They all have to be bushfire resistant timber here in New South Wales. Once you get over bowel 2029, then the, the timber kind of drops out. So bowel 40 is generally a timber free zone. So we're looking at the way that it's exposed and the elements and how we can use those elements to stop the fire from starting in and around the building because we want to make sure that it does that doesn't happen and if it does happen then we've got other mechanisms that you can you know put out some spot fires and and here in New South Wales we have a another document which is planning for bushfire protection put out by the rural fire service and um, that's about to come law here in New South Wales and on the 1st of March and then what that does is it looks at landscaping, it looks at fences, it looks at um, decking material. It, it goes over and above um, the Australian standard and the Nash standard and um, collectively that's kind of moving in the right direction.
that sounds like it could be a great reference document for people who are outside of New South Wales as well. Yes, yes, it is. It, it's a free document. Um, you can get it from the New South Wales Rural Fire Service website, and um, it's it, it came in in November nineteen uh, two thousand nineteen, and it will become law here on the first of March. And I think you can read it cover to cover in about four hours, but it really does give you a great understanding of bushfires and how it has an impact. But it goes into the collective um, components where you've got to have ongoing maintenance of landscaping. Like as of the 1st of March here in New South Wales, you, you won't be able to have landscaping up against your building. You've got to have either a path around your building or mown grass to your building. And I think that that in itself is a is a major step forward, and I think that we're going to start seeing some improvements and and more um, buildings saved due to bushfire. Well, I guess, like you said, those elements reduce the invitation for fire to your house, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're right on. Yep. So you mentioned decks before, and I know in the Shoalhaven region, so many people would like to enjoy the lifestyle of being outside. If I'm a builder and I'm building a deck in a bushfire-prone area, how can I identify the timbers that are bushfire-resistant? Uh, builders will know that through the Australian Standard. Uh, the Australian Standard also has some appendices, which I'm sorry I failed to mention earlier. But one of those appendices deals with um, the requirements for, for timber. And um, it's Appendix F, which deals with bushfire-resistant timber. And in that um, section there, it lists naturally occurring bushfire resistant species and many people would be aware of one of them which is merbau and that's um, used quite extensively in the industry. We also have ironbark and turpentine and um, spotted gum and black butt, they're all in there too. So they need to build them out of that but as a certifier I, and here in New South Wales because it's, a, it's an additional standard here in New South Wales that you can't have um, pine or treated pine here in New South Wales but what I find really frustrating we get to the final inspection stage or the occupational uh, certificate stage and uh, we find that we've got a a, a, um, a pine deck in a bushfire prone area and of course they have to replace it and that that does make it really really difficult for us because we have the two standards um, the uh, planning for bushfire protection and the Australian standard uh, working side by side here, it's important for us from a local government perspective to make sure that on the approvals we say to people, watch out for your deck, your deck has to achieve this and, and we're trying to put that on the plans to alert them to that. Sometimes um, builders get caught out and we are sorry about that but we, we have to go through for the letter of the law because my members, um, we're certifying it and we're going to be in trouble if we don't get it right. Yep, communication is key. Um, Colin, we've spoken about windows, we've spoken about roofs, we've spoken about materials um, and essentially bushfire-prone areas, but if you, could, if you could give builders one bit of advice, what would it be? Well, I suppose it's um, un have an understanding that it's not just the Australian standard or the NASH standard, whichever one you want to pick. It's also about the longevity of this, and we need to get owners... Um, with an understanding of what they have to do um, to improve their chances of survival. I'm a firm believer in that at point of sale we should be doing something and uh, we have a similar system here in New South Wales with swimming pools and I know other, other uh, jurisdictions have the same sort of requirements where you have to get a swimming pool certificate. Well I'm thinking at point of sale why don't we get a bushfire health check 
certificate so that people can say, I'm buying into this building. Oh, I didn't realise that I, that I have to have my landscaping at a set distance. I have to make sure that I maintain my property for the life of my property. I have to be aware that what I do could have an impact on me and just have some, some quick tips for them so that when they go in and buy it and that becomes part of the um, part of the documentation for the sale, I think that that will help. But from a builder's perspective and from a certifier's perspective, because let's face it, after a bushfire, who gets attacked most? It's the certifier and it's the, it's the builder. We've got to work together. And I think it's really, really important that the certifier becomes an integral part with the builder to, to explain these bushfire requirements so that they do have that understanding. I've been out and given lots of seminars to builders and, and also to building surveyors. And it's surprising that it's just some of these basic concepts and, and you can see the light bulb go on that they don't need to do much to improve the chances of survival and you know that you've got them and they've moved it forward and they're going to go out there and spread the good news which I think is great. I just want the builders to not be scared of this bushfire stuff and talk to your certifier because your certifier should be across it and if, you, if they're not then talk to other people. You'll find that your, your local councils will be across it or go out there and seek information because the Australian Institute of Building Surveyors can help you. Um, the RFS, or, or depends which jurisdiction you're in, uh, your bushfire people can all help you along with those things and keep asking questions because we're not going to know unless you ask questions. We need to be able to answer those and sometimes we're too close to the document that we don't realise that what might make sense to me is not making sense to a builder. So I need to fix that. Yeah. And I've got builders down here, you know, um, who have spoken to me about it. And we've, we've run little things here. And they're actually scared. They're scared of, of doing a building in a bushfire prone area because they're scared of getting it wrong. And, um, and it's that fear that we've got to dispel. It's, it's, it's not hard. We can do this. You know, and it's okay to talk to your certifier to get it right and talk to mums and dads as well. Get everybody in the tent and we can, we can make this happen. Yeah. And this is, um, and the builders are just worried because, you know, after a bushfire, the builder gets belted and so does the council, you know, and oh, the certifier. And that's, uh, and I hate that. If people wanted more information or were looking for some good resources, Colin, where, where would they look? Yeah, I, I, as I said, I really like um, planning for bushfire protection because I think that it does give you, it gives you a holistic approach. It goes through the planning mechanisms and what you do for residential and rural residential. Here in New South Wales, we look at um, other types of developments. So we're looking at all classes of buildings and what you can do um, to get those improved. So I like that document. I also um, think that the Australian standard is, is a good document. It does go through and it does explain things. And it has, uh, to me, uh, a format that you can understand and you can you can move through it. Um, so I think that they're two prime documents. Uh, the Nash standard, of course, is another one that is a good document. But even if you just get onto onto Google, and you, you, you're going to find a lot of stuff on there on bushfire stuff. And the more the more bushfires we have, um, the more we're going to learn because there will be ground surveys that are done on those bushfires, and there'll also be um, reports on those and when those reports come out you can have a look and it'll it'll try and tell you what happened during that bushfire situation and we can all learn from those sorts of things. Thanks for your time Colin we really appreciate the support you're giving to the building industry and we uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you.
It was really interesting to hear Colin talk about um, landscaping, I found. You know, as builders, we're, we're always focused on what it is we're trying to do to protect houses or whatever, what is, it, can, what is it we can do to protect housing. But it was really interesting to him to talk about what needs to be maintained to, I guess, maintain that protection. Yeah, Max, it was, you know, listening to Colin as an expert and being in the field for 25 years, you know, one of the things I thought about was, you know, they've put a lot of, a lot of work into this already. Like a lot of people think we, you know, there's not a lot going on when it comes to bushfires, but there is people working on it all the time. So that was quite interesting um, to hear. But in relation to some of the buildings and, you know, the practical sense in relation to fire and uh, fuel loading, whether it's your neighbour's house or a um, fence or a shrubbery around the house um, was quite interesting because, you know, your biggest threat could be your neighbour's house um, or your biggest threat could be the shrubs you pointed, uh, planted uh, three, four years ago that are now beautiful but in a fire um, they're going to be fuel. So I guess some common sense things come out of... Um, the podcast and listening to Colin and having paths around the house. But then again, you get the pushback from people that say, I want the choice to have the vegetation. I think the, the big takeaway for me is if if we understand the risks that bushfires present to housing and we know that, that the outcome is not to stay in the house and have it treated as a bushfire shelter, but to you know give it the best chance of surviving a bushfire. I thought it was re- it's really interesting to hear that if you understand those weaknesses, well then they're not things that we need to be scared of. The, you know the industry the industry knows how to to build. That's what we do every day, and we might make a few tweaks to the things we focus on, but uh, generally we can cover it. Yeah, that's right. So the other couple of things that Colin touched on, I think is that the code did change a couple of years ago and that'll be implemented now with the rebuilds um, and I think with some uh, further education around evacuations and get that a little bit more fine-tuned, I think uh, then we wait and see how, I guess, that new code is implemented, see what the shortfalls are or whether we've gone over the top with the costs, how all that works. So you know, the last thing we want to do is layer on top of layer more cost and then, you know, it's great if you want to build houses that are totally fireproof but if people can't afford them. And I think there is a balance between the two and um, obviously after a horrific fire like that, then um, we, we certainly will learn a lot and we have learned a lot but there's a lot of discussion to be had. Did you hear something in today's show notes that you wanted to write down? Don't worry, we've taken all the notes for you. You can access the show notes at masterbuilders.com.au forward slash podcast. If you want to hear more great stuff about building and construction, make sure you go ahead and click the subscribe button. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a rating? And don't forget to tell your friends and workmates about the podcast. We'll bring it up at your next toolbox talk. I'm Max Rafferty. Until next time, stay safe.